Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I am your host for episode 23 on September 29th, 2010. This podcast is part of the Eero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. Air Medical Today is published throughout the year, and with each episode, we explore a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook and Twitter. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes. For additional information about the guest on the podcast, I also provide background data on the Eero Podcast Network blog at blog.eero.com. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or lead feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Today's guest is Dr. David Lamb, adjunct associate professor at the Center for Trauma and Anesthesiology Research at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, who will be talking about the history of air medicine from his extensive 30 years of research on the topic. In the first response section, I will also be checking in with Don Mancuso on the upcoming Air Medical Transport Conference and Jonathan Godfrey on Vision Zero. Before I introduce my guests, I want to go over some feedback from episode 22 and talk about some changes with Air Medical today. Well, I've had a busy summer with my stepdaughter's wedding in the Cayman Islands in late July, and then again a large reception in Dallas in September. I am also very pleased to announce that I have been offered and have accepted the position of Program Director for MedLink Air and Specialty Care Transport at Gunderson Lutheran Health System in La Crosse, Wisconsin. I start at Gunderson on October 4th and am very excited and honored to be part of a first-class program and health system in one of my favorite states. Those that know me well know that I have traveled to Wisconsin every winter for over 25 years to participate in the American Berkebinder Nordic Ski Marathon in February, so it will be really nice to enjoy this beautiful state year-round. Because of my new position, I am changing things a bit with Air Medical today. First, what will not change is the daily updates on news and information regarding the Air Medical community and industry through the Air Medical Today Twitter and Facebook accounts. What will change is that I will be taking the podcast to a once a month format and will concentrate solely on interviews rather than trying to recap the news. I never realized when I started Air Medical Today how much Air Medical news there is, and then also found it quite hard to synthesize and summarize it down to a presentable format. This would be even harder with a once-per-month podcast. It is not that I may not comment or mention things in the news, but from my experience and listener feedback, the interviews are what people are most interested in hearing. I also wanted to provide some advance notice to a project that I am working on for the Association of Air Medical Services. I am putting together a recording of the AIMS past presidents who are talking about the state of the industry community during their tenure. 
The compilation is part of the 30th anniversary celebration of Ames, and the recording will be available on Air Medical today before the Air Medical Transport Conference. I did not receive any specific feedback from episode 22, but if you have not listened to it, please do, as Scott Kunkel has some very interesting comments and points on working with EMS first responders. Also remember that if your program or service has a Facebook fan page, be sure that it is linked at the Air Medical Today Facebook page. Please just email me or contact me if it is not. I am always on the lookout for all those Air Medical and Critical Care Transport fan pages on Facebook so it is easier for others to find you. The sponsorship page is up and you can get to it by following the link on the homepage. To continue all the work I am doing in bringing news and information and the podcast, I still need your financial support. So if you can become a sponsor, your company or name will be listed according to the level of support. Sponsorship is also a great way to highlight your company or name, so do contact me. In the first response section, I will be talking to Don Mancuso, the Executive Director of the Association of Air Medical Services, on the upcoming Air Medical Transport Conference, and Jonathan Godfrey, Chair of the AIMS Vision Zero Initiative, on some new developments with Vision Zero. First, I talked to Don. Well, welcome, Don. Thanks for being on the podcast and giving us a quick update on the upcoming AMTC. Uh, tell us a little bit about the planning. How, how are things going? Oh, it's going great, Ed. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and share a little bit about it with you. Um, the the planning's going really well. Uh, staff is getting ready to do the last shipment out to, to Fort Lauderdale of all the materials we need on site and uh, registering people every day. And um, believe it or not, we actually oversold the exhibit hall, so we're very excited about the conference. Really? Wow. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah, we're very excited. Um, people seem to be very... Um, you know, uh, excited and 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 very enthusiastic about being able to come to Florida and and hear the latest and greatest about what's going on in the field. Yeah, is uh, do you have registration numbers yet or? Um, well, it's changing by the minute. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, so it's a tough one to give you. We anticipate we'll have somewhere in the vicinity of um, you know twenty one hundred to twenty four hundred somewhere in there, depending mm-hmm. upon what happens on site. Yeah. You know, the nice part about going to Florida is there are lots of programs in the area. Yeah, I was so. going to say that. Yeah, because you've got a lot of people. I mean, Florida programs and Georgia. I mean, a lot of programs that are easy driving distance, really. Um, exactly. Yeah, even like North Carolina, I think it's only what twelve. 14 hours. So that's, right. that's wonderful. We've even had some, we even had a lot of, because of the, the exposure the industry's gotten in the national press, we've gotten um, a number of folks interested in coming that wouldn't ordinarily come aren't members. So, you know, hospital CEOs and those kinds of folks from the South Florida region. Oh, good. Well, this is the big 30th anniversary year. What are some of the activities being planned? Oh yeah, it's it's fun to be here for the thirtieth. I can't believe that um I've gotten through two of these anniversary <laughs> <Yeah>. um <laughs> events having having been here with Ames since um well before the twentieth anniversary, but yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Yeah. Plan that one too, yeah. Um the, we've got lots of things planned, um, not the least of which is uh, sort of a a um uh series of recorded interviews with folks that have been in the industry for a long time, and I want to 
do a shout out to you to thank you for your help um, in doing those interviews and look forward to seeing the podcast um, on Air Medical Today. Yeah, it's been it's been it's been fun. I mean, it's I'm doing the past presidents, and it's just uh, fascinating uh, listening to people, uh, you know, that from the from the very beginning and some of the issues and how some of them are very similar to what we're experiencing today. So <laughs> nothing new under the sun, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's new things too, but it's just uh, it it's uh, you know, thirty years for us it seems like a long time, but then. Uh, you know, it's really not. You know, it's uh, there's a lot of similarities. Yeah. Well, that, part of those interviews, you know, are going to be part of um, the, the kickoff. We hope to have them, um, you know, on a continual loop or, or available for people to watch on site at the conference. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a display of of um, information, materials, and pictures from the history of the organization and the field. Um, we. Um, are going to have some folks that um, have been involved in the industry for a long time and those that were involved in the industry uh, with us at the Ames membership reception on Sunday evening. Um, we're we're going to take these podcasts and the, and the information we've collected and actually create a history website so that um, the launch of that website will dovetail in the spring with the National EMS Week. Oh. And, yeah. And also with something new we're doing as part of our um, proactive uh, public education, public awareness building campaign, which is to actually create a National Medevac Hour as part of that week. So we've got some, some exciting things in the works. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. And you're doing some actual video uh, work too, right? Yeah, some... we hope to. So, well, you know, yeah. still to be seen. Yeah, well, that's great. Yeah. Um, is there, uh, I, I know this has, uh, you know, been another difficult year with the, the crashes. What types of uh, programming are you going to have on safety? No, oh, safety is a really big focus of the conference this year. Um one of the, the two general session speakers, Tuesday's general session, um, is an astronaut, a former astronaut with NASA. His name is Dan Birch, and he's a veteran of four space flights and has a lot to share with us about some of the safety improvements that were instituted by NASA and, and which of those might be replicated in medical transport operations. Uh, we also have a, a pretty robust safety track of um, educational classes at the conference, not the least of which is a, you know, two classes being taught by Dr. Ira Blumen, uh, where he will be presenting um, the, the preliminary research findings of his HEMS OSI, Opportunities for Safety Improvement Research, that's been going on for a couple of years. That was funded in part by the Medivac Foundation. We also have a class being taught by um, one of the, the faculty of our new Safety Management Training Academy. It's a class on quantum safety metrics, and this uh-huh. is a uh, hands-down probably the, the um, best-received class at SMTA this year. So, Is that um, a pre-con, Don, or is that a, a class? No, it's actually one of the lectures. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, we also have folks from the FAA coming to, to talk about the long-awaited FAA and PRM notice of proposed rulemaking um, about HEMS uh, and air medical service safety, and as well as representatives from the NTSB to talk to us about their future plans and, and what they're finding in accidents in air medical. Um, we've got a pre-conference on safety management systems, as well as several classes during the safety track on that. CAMES is doing a just culture 
uh, pre-conference workshop. Mm. So we've got a lot going on. That sounds wonderful. Uh, so um, I guess anything else about the conference? Oh, yeah. Well, of course, you can't forget the trade show. Um, oh, yeah. As I just mentioned to you, you know, we've got an oversold uh, exhibit floor. A number of the exhibitors on the floor this year have something to offer in the way of safety, whether that's safety management systems consulting or it's um, uh, you know enhanced uh, visioning systems or it's flight simulators or patient care simulators or training or personal protective equipment, weather reporting, terrain avoidance systems. We've got, you know, a wide selection on the show floor. So is there uh, a a number of new exhibitors this year that haven't been to AMTC? Yeah, we always always have a few. This year we seem to have quite a number. I don't Mm -hmm. have off the top of my head a number of new ones, but... uh, I'll have to go out and see it. That's great. Well, good. Uh, it's great work on the staff's part. Uh, so what do you do in an oversold situation? Is this like an airplane that you have to uh, <laughs> offer someone? <laughs> well, we get creative about where we put things. Let's put it yeah. that way. <laughs> yeah. so crunch up some of the booths. that. Uh, <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's wonderful. I'm looking forward to it, and we'll see you uh, in Fort Lauderdale. I know the staff's very busy, and I, again, appreciate you taking uh, a little bit of time off to, to talk about it. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I'm looking forward to seeing everybody in Fort Lauderdale. And now, Jonathan. Welcome back to the show, Jonathan. It's great to have you on. Well, thanks so much, Ed. Well, I know you've been doing a lot since we uh, recorded the podcast on Vision Zero. Tell us about uh, what you're doing. Well, it it is uh, a little bit over a year, um, and we have really uh, focused on kind of bringing Vision Zero back down to the crew level, giving it a little bit more definition, a little more tangibility, um, and focusing on the uh, education, um, awareness, and vigilance. I think that we've done a good job at that, um, and now we need to look forward to uh, 2011. Is there some specific things that you're trying to do to in redefining it back to the crew level? Um, you know, you know the, a few of the things. One of the things that took off a little bit more than I an- anticipated was the um, daily broadcasts out um, under Twitter. Um, uh-huh. I, I thought that a few people would wind up going and following that, and it actually wound up getting a lot larger and going international. Um, there are some flight programs in Europe, Germany, well, of course in Europe, um, Japan, um, that have gone ahead and, uh, and started to follow that. My hope is, is that we, we have a global look at the helicopter EMS industry um, as far as safety goes. I see. Well, that's great. I'm glad that's working out. I, um, as you know, we helped you out getting that started and retweeted a lot of those, and and actually still follow um, all your broadcasts both on Facebook and Twitter. So glad that that is continuing because you do seem to have a a big following with that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, tell us about uh, what's going on for AMTC. What what's planned as far as Vision Zero for the 30th anniversary? Well, some of the uh, typical things, um, there are a lot of 
sessions that have been uh, recognized by um, the association as Vision Zero safety type topics. Um, those will be very familiar when you go and look at your program if you go to Fort Lauderdale. Um, a couple other things. One is is that we are um, going to have a booth again this year, and uh, kind of a little catchy theme. Um, the tweets that I or the Twitter posts, also called tweets, um, that w I had spoke of have been um, created by pilots in the industry. Um, one thing that I was hoping to do was to get a perspective also from the medical personnel, um, have them also create some safety um, topics to, uh, to create discussion. Um, so we're going to have tweets for peeps. Um, and I'm going to be, I'm going to solicit, um, some, uh, some Twitter topics from the attendees at AMTC. Um, also, it sounds like we're going to have some good partnership from peeps, the, uh, sugar loaded little yellow, uh, birds that people are familiar, probably mostly around Easter, um, to give it, uh, you know, some, a, a little more pizzazz. Um, so there'll be some giveaways at the booth. Um, That's great. I, I'm a uh, peepaholic. I mean, when it comes around Easter, I can't stay away from those things. My wife just hates them. She'll buy them for me. I have to open them and let them get a little crunchy. Crunchy, you know, they can't be fresh, you know. So it's uh, people that know me know that I have that. Uh, so I, I'll I'll be over there. <laughs> Well, that sounds good, um, you know, and we'll have some instructions on the, you know, the limitation of number of characters and stuff like that. But I think it should be kind of fun. We're also partnering the the uh, the table right next to Vision Zero is the uh, Survivor Network, and um, you'll hear a lot about that at AMTC and, of course, in years to follow as well. Um, so that's really kind of the fun stuff that we're doing at uh, at AMTC this year. That's great. Well, I know, too, uh, you're working on a grant. Uh, can you tell us about that? Sure. The FAA goes and has a certain amount of money set aside for grants every year. Um, one of those things um, in communi communication with the FAA is that they recognize that the, particularly um, in the nature of the uh, CRM and AMRAM instructions or suggestions that they put out in 2005, Vision Zero falls right underneath that um, and mimics much of that. I think that they've been glad to see what we've done so far, but uh, we were encouraged to go ahead and apply for a grant and see Vision Zero grow even more, kind of take um, another step forward and fo more formalize what's going on. Um, you know, last year it was uh, um, gathering up what had been done in the five years previous, um, which was very much at the top of the industry. Um, the last year has been to reach down and really grab a hold and lay a foundation for the people who are actually out there doing the job. 2011 looks more like it's going to be further bring that along, um, include more disciplines, um, and reach out, uh, you know, to the future to see how big an umbrella that we can really create for Vision Zero. I see. Well, that's fantastic. I wish you the best of luck with that. And, uh, I look forward to seeing you at, at AMTC, and I will be over for some peeps. 
Well, that, that that's great, Ed. Thank you so much. And uh, go ahead and come on over and find us. Will do. Thanks again, Jonathan. Okay, thanks, Ed. Today I am interviewing Dr. David Lamb, adjunct associate professor at the Center for Trauma and Anesthesiology Research at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, who will be talking about the history of air medicine from his extensive 30 years of research on the topic. Dr. Lamb attended Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota, where he received his B.A. in Government and International Relations. He received his M.D. degree from the University of Minnesota in 1972 and also earned a master's degree in public health from the University of Texas. He is board certified as a specialist in aerospace medicine and is a fellow of the Aerospace Medical Association, the American Academy of Family Physicians, and the American College of Physician Executives. David has also been elected as an academician of the International Academy of Aviation and Space Medicine. He is licensed and registered as a physician both in the United States and Alaska and in the United Kingdom. Colonel Lamb was commissioned in the United States Army in 1971 and served in a wide variety of assignments, including one tour in Korea, two in Alaska, and two in Germany, in addition to his last military assignment at NATO headquarters in Brussels, Belgium. He served in many clinical staff and command positions throughout his career, including as commander of three hospitals, a Corps Surgeon, Research Area Director, Surgeon for a Joint Task Force in Combat, and additionally as Task Force Surgeon for the U.S. Humanitarian Operations in Rwanda and Zaire. Dr. Lamb's final military assignment was as a medical staff officer at NATO headquarters. He served for an unprecedented five years at the request of the NATO medical community and was the impetus for some of the greatest changes in Alliance medical doctrine since its creation. David retired from the active Army on July 1, 2001, and now serves as the adjunct associate professor at the Center for Trauma and Anesthesiology Research at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. He has been seconded to the U.S. Army Telemedicine and Advanced Technology Research Center in Fort Detrick, Maryland, where he serves as the European Liaison Officer responsible for maintaining links to researchers in Europe, including with the NATO medical community, the European Space Agency, and the European Commission. He works primarily in the areas of telemedicine standardization, project development, and deployment of systems, mostly in the NATO and Partnership for Peace Nations. He serves as the secretary for the NATO Telemedicine Expert Team, which is charged with developing policies and procedures which will enhance the multinational interoperability of telemedicine systems in a multinational operational environment. Additionally, he serves on several other research task groups for the NATO Research and Technology Organization, including one on the use of unpiloted aerial vehicles for casualty evacuation. He and his wife have lived in Brussels, Belgium for 15 years. They have two children and four grandchildren. Starting as a young flight surgeon in the Army is where he first became involved in aeromedical evacuation and has been fascinated with the complex history of the development of aeromedical evacuation ever since. 
He has been researching and writing on this subject for more than 30 years and is now considered one of the world's foremost experts on the subject. His current project is research for a biography of Mademoiselle Marie Marvin of France, who has been described as the godmother of medical aviation and who was the first certified flight nurse. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Lamb. It is really a pleasure to have you here today discussing uh, the history of air medicine, and this is especially important as we celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Association of Air Medical Services. Well, thanks a lot, Ed. It's a great pleasure to have the opportunity to discuss it with you. Um, history of AeroVac is a fun and fascinating field that has a lot to teach us, so I'm glad to be here. Well, I, I can tell from looking over your work that this has been a, a labor of love uh, for many years, and you first became interested in air medicine and aeromedical evacuation as a young flight surgeon in the Army in 1973, correct? Uh, mostly, yeah. I actually first got interested in aviation medicine when my father was on a recovery team for the Mercury program prior to that. Wow. And then when I started getting involved myself was actually when I went through the basic flight surgeon school down at Fort Rucker, Alabama in 73. And at that time, one fact jumped out at me in one of the early presentations, and they said, you realize, of course, that the Huey helicopter that everybody has seen flying into their living rooms on television from Vietnam every night for the past 10 years was designed by the Army Medical Department as an AeroVac asset, and it was only later taken on by the Army. I thought that was fascinating. You know, here we got the medics leading the way. Hmm. And then I, then I went down to the Fort Rucker Museum where they had the R-4, which was the first helicopter used in AeroVac. And I started saying, you know, this is a neat thing to do. And then I had the opportunity to meet retired General Spurgeon Neal, who talked to me about all of his experiences in setting up AeroVac systems in, in Korea. And it just sort of grew from there. Yeah, because you've now spent, what, 30, 30 years looking at this and really are considered the world's foremost expert on the subject. Well, there are a couple other people that are very well respected in the area, but I'm one of the, the most well-known top three or four, at least. Mm -hmm. Given your historical research, then, when exactly did air evacuation start? Well, you know, it's sort of hard to say. Um, if you go back to old myths, the Greeks um, in the Iliad and the Odyssey show talk about gods picking up wounded warriors and returning them to the battlefield. The Norse Valkyries took the dead to Valhalla, where they were essentially returned to life. There are lots of myths and fairy tales. The the Indian Vaimanyas were reported as picking up and taking away wounded. But in reality, I think the concept started to be discussed immediately after the balloon flight demonstrations by the Montgolfier brothers in France. In 1784, right after they first showed the concept of manned balloon flight, the medical faculty at Montpellier supported the future use of balloons for the treatment of the sick and injured, which I thought was interesting. They theorized that not only would patients tolerate the flights, but that they'd actually, quote, benefit from the purer air encountered at altitude, unquote. Hmm. Hmm. 
But the first really usable concepts for Aravac, I think, were presented by Dr. Cornelius de Moy, who was the Dutch Surgeon General at the turn of the last century. From 1895 to 1910, he published a series of drawings and diagrams and concepts for a full evacuation system, moving casualties from the battlefield. He envisioned the use of balloons, both hot air and um, gas-filled, airplanes, wheeled wagons that were lifted by dirigibles and then towed off the battlefield by horses and ropes. Um, he really did have um, an overall view of a system of AE. He developed the concept that was later used, actually, for carrying casualties inside the fuselage of small biplanes, not in the fuselage as we think of as a passenger liner, but actually in the tail empennage of an aircraft without any access in flight. Um, Unfortunately, most of his ideas never were carried beyond the conceptual stages. Uh, they weren't tested or implemented at that time. But the concept earned him the um, European title of the Jules Verne of aviation medicine. Hmm. He was really seen as a real uh, farseer and, in fact, um, a fiction writer because nobody thought they could do it. But I think if you have to look at when did it really get going and start doing things, probably 1909 or 1910 was the seminal year. Um, there was the Gossman Rhodes airplane that was designed as an air ambulance in the United States. It was totally impractical. It required the patient to lie unprotected on the wing of a biplane um, right next to the pilot physician. Um, flew once, broke an oil line, crashed in a tree, and was never rebuilt. Uh, Gossman, however, thought that he had proved his point, and he went to the War Department and said, you know, hey, I can clearly see we're going to save thousands of lives doing this. And the War Department said, and I quote, the hazard of being severely wounded was sufficient without the additional hazard of transportation by airplane. Um, it wasn't uh, well accepted, let's yeah. put it that way. Um, then in France, again, 1909, 1910, 1911, there was a whole series of people who started pushing in different areas for the concept, one of whom, and I think the most influential, was a lady named Marie Marvin. I'll tell you more about her later on. There was a Dr. Duchessoy um, who started talking about it to the women's groups of the French Red Cross pushing it as a Red Cross attribute that needed to be developed. We had Dr. Raymond, who was a senator as well as a military officer and a surgeon, who thought that aircraft could be used over the battlefield searching for casualties, not carrying them, not carrying medical personnel to them, but just simply finding them, which mm -hmm. was a major problem at the time. And then there was Cha Sayang, another physician, doctor, member of parliament, who got the French government in 1915-16 to give him an airplane to do experiments with. And he actually was able to build the first usable airplane ambulance. The League of Nations had international meetings and discussions on the concept of AE in 1912 before it had ever been implemented. But they were thinking about it, and they were starting to, at that time to talk about what later became the Geneva Conventions and their application to air ambulances. 
So I'd say 1909 to 1912 is probably the the biggest forward-looking period in Arafat. I see. And then when you talked about the uh, Franco-Prussian uh, War, the the balloon evacuations, that was not really an evac. <laughs> um, no. Okay. It's often reported that there were 160 patients moved out of Paris during the siege of Paris in 1871. It simply didn't happen. A couple of years back, I did a full examination of all of the passenger and crew lists of every balloon that left Paris during the period. And the article I published shows that there were zero wounded or sick being carried. Okay. There were many, many different reasons for people to leave, but none of them were passengers. Or none of them were patients. I don't know exactly where the myth started, but the concept was popularized by Harry Armstrong in his Principles and Practice of Aerospace Medicine from 1956. And people just sort of picked it up from him. And and basically, I guess the answer is it's a great story. It should have happened, but it didn't. Okay. Um, There was opposition in both government and civilian circles to the concept of air evacuation prior to World War I. What were the reasons for this? Well, you know, there were both good reasons and bad reasons. It's often said that the military is always very well equipped and prepared to fight the last war. And that certainly was the case. Um, during that decade of drift into World War One, they were still planning on major cavalry battles and so forth. Nobody thought of tanks. Machine guns were still a novelty. Airplanes were a really a novelty. They were new and they were dangerous. They were probably seen as being more dangerous than they actually were, but they were dangerous. There were efforts made to outlaw airplanes in several countries since so many pilots were being killed. One of my other projects, I, I realized a year or two ago that nobody had ever done a study to determine how many people were killed in airplane accidents prior to the onset of World War One. And so I've been accumulating that data for a few years, and so far I've got over 800. Now, when you realize that aviation in Europe, fixed-wing, heavier-than-air aviation, didn't really start until 1908 with the Wright Brothers' flight demonstrations, and I ended my data as of the 1st of August, 1914, you've only got six years there. Now, how many pilots were there? How many airplanes were there? but we killed over 800. So there was a very rational um, sense, I think, in the populace and in the military forces and in the civil governments that this was just too dangerous to do. Mm -hmm. Further, you gotta put it in perspective. Gosman and Rhodes made their proposal in the same year to the U.S. Army, in the same year in which the Army bought its first airplane. They were not to buy another one for nearly two years. And only two years after the Army bought its first motorized ground ambulance. And here they're saying, let's take these things out on the battlefield and put patients in them. The arguments were basically the same around the world. Mm -hmm. Military medical people thought they were great. Politicians and the public opposed them. And then they started putting in some of the practical problems. With potentially tens of thousands of casualties on a major European battlefield, how could airplanes of that era have made a dent in the problem? There weren't enough of them. Mm-hmm. They weren't reliable enough. So they had risk. They had problems with supply of suitable aircraft and pilots. 
and generally there weren't any airplanes really suitable for conversion to AeroVac use up until the middle of World War One. And so that's why. Okay. So it was really more to do with uh, the infancy of aviation in general, um, and 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 the types of aircraft that would be available uh, to do evacuation. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, it was conceivable that in fact you could could use some of these small light fighter aircraft. But in reality, the people were looking at it very practically and saying, you know, how much benefit is this going to be to how many people? And, and you mentioned uh, in the, during the middle of the war, what happened there? Is it, again, just the uh, increases in uh, the types of aircraft available, safety, reliability? No, actually, AIRVAC happened for the first time during World War I, um, surely by accident. Every nation had rejected the concept. But in 1915, in November, the um, retreat of the Serbian army out of the Balkans was happening. They were being pushed out by the Bulgars. The French force that was with them had a number of wounded who could not be evacuated. And it was um, considered unthinkable to abandon them to capture. So based on that, they decided to evacuate them by air. And on the 15th of November, 1915, the first evacuation took place. They just crammed the patient in the back seat of an old fighter airplane and flew him out. And over the next month, another dozen to 20, depending on which studies you look at, were moved the same way, just in the gunner seat of a fighter. Wow. Um, even with that, showing that it worked, there was still opposition. That same month, one member of the Chamber of Deputies in France said, are there not enough dead in France today without killing or wounded in airplanes? So, you know, it just happened sort of by accident, but it set the example. I see. Hey, I was just wondering if and, there was some uh, major thing that happened, you know, during the middle of the war as no. opposed to the, the beginning. Yeah. No, the, the major thing that happened actually was in opposition to Arabac, and that was because in the Battle of Verdun, there were literally hundreds of thousands of casualties. You couldn't move all by airplane, even if you'd had airplanes available. And so the the whole concept was seen as something that is sort of nice to have, but not really very useful for very many people. Where it became valuable, and the difference was mission-based. In the United States, during the First World War, we developed a lot of flying training fields. And they were usually out in the countryside you know, with poor roads, and it was often very hard to get to crash victims. So Major Oker and Driver, who was an Army aviator and a doctor in the U.S. Army, developed an ambulance conversion of the JN-4 Jenny. And by late, late 1918 and early 1919, they were available in every flying field in the United States for crash rescue. A very different situation from the battlefields of Europe, where you had hundreds or thousands of casualties. Now we're talking about being able to help one person at a time. Right. And that's where the air ambulance first really won its wings and showed its value. I see. So when did the first usable concept of moving patients by fixed-wing aircraft get started? Well, you know, based on that exposure, there was a lot of interest after the war and the French developed an air ambulance system for their colonial wars, specifically the Rift Valley War, 
um, in the 1920s. And they deployed entire systems of both large and small aircraft, one um, casualty versus up to four casualties, all over North Africa. And for a period of about six years, they actually evacuated over 7,000 casualties. Uh, they also used them for moving surgeons forward to be with the casualties and perform surgery in situ, but they moved 7,000. And then based on that, during the 1920s and 30s, most major nations experimented with air ambulances, including especially the French, the British, the Americans, the um, Russians, and the Swedes. The Swedes were probably the first to set up a civilian air ambulance system using Fokker or seaplanes and started providing medical support to people in the far isolated areas, like up in Lapland. They were followed very rapidly by the Russians, who incorporated air ambulances into their national health care systems in Siberia, and interestingly, Thailand, which had an air ambulance system by the mid-1920s. So that was really about when it took off. Military use first, then slow motion into the civilian realm, and then real system development. What, what about in the U.S. during that same period? Well, during the 20s and 30s, the U.S., again, experimented with certain aircraft. The Fokker Y1C-15 was seen as, quote, the largest flying hospital in the world. Um, it could carry about three patients. Um, we had the A-2, which was another kind of Fokker, and then we actually developed the first airplane that was first designed and built as an air ambulance, the, Fokker, the Cox Clemen XA-1. But mostly they were built in one or maybe two copies, were used as experiments, and then returned to normal use. What we did see in a few small areas, like in the late 30s, was um, physicians who lived in rural areas, like there was a Dr. Minty in South Dakota who owned an airplane, and he started making house calls with his airplane, and once in a while would carry a patient back to the big city for hospitalization. And that was sort of how it developed up until the beginning of World War II. We'd get doctors with their own airplanes flying their own patients, usually in isolated areas like Alaska or South Dakota, but no real development of systems. Okay. Well, let's, let's go to World War II now, because um, it was used extensively in the war. Um, what arose from this mass usage of air evacuation in World War II, and, and I guess why is this important to our understanding of the development of airvac in general? Yeah, I think that's a critical issue because World War II was really when air evacuation got out of adolescence and started entering young adulthood, if you will. During the war, there were over 4 million casualties moved by air. The U.S. system evacuated over 1.2 million with a death rate in flight of, I think it was like 5 per 100,000. What we showed was that, number one, casualties did better if they were moved faster, as you would expect. Number two, that almost every patient who was suitable to be moved by any means could be moved by air safely. And three, that in-flight care 
even of a very low level, provided by trained medical personnel, i.e. flight nurses, added measurably to the success rate and to the survival rate. During the war, there was a constant and slow improvement in the quality of care that was given on board the aircraft. When they started out, they were putting um, basically Band-Aids and IVs. Later, they started carrying oxygen. By the end of the war, we actually had some aircraft that were able to carry iron lungs. Hmm. So the capability of care in flight was being experimented with and was slowly improving. But during World War II, the general care in flight was keep them warm, keep them oxygenated, stop the bleeding, and keep the Band-Aids going. So or, it, sorry, keep the IVs going. Yeah, so it was primarily <laughs> evacuation, but then you saw the gradual implementation of, of actual treatment. Yeah, but it never got very far. Okay. Um, even the highest level of treatment um, was not of the level of chest tubes. Normally, they didn't have um, endotracheal tubes. It was really basic and advanced first aid, with a few exceptions. I mean, the, the worst is the Russian under-the-wing evacuation pods, where they took old-style biplanes and put a coffin underneath the wing and just slid the patient in it and shut the door wow. and flew them off. Yeah. No windows, even. Yeah. But I think that the, the concept of the training of flight nurses was one of the biggest lessons learned during the war. And all the nations had been thinking about it prior to the war. The French had set up a flight nurse system prior to the war as part of their Red Cross, which was originally proposed, in fact, by Marie Marvin um, right after World War One. But they started implementing it in 1935 and then were conquered fairly rapidly, so they never really implemented a lot of it. But the U.S. then instituted flight nursing and carried on that tradition up through the rest of the war. And it led to the basic rule. Move stabilized patients who don't need too much care in flight, and they'll do just fine with attendance. Right. Throwing people on airplanes without attendance isn't a good idea. And that's that's sort of the lesson to be learned. But of course, the early evac was at least uh, an improvement on leaving someone at the battlefield with no care. At least there was a, the possibility, well, correct? And also, if you think of, for instance, um, D-Day, mm -hmm. June 6, 1944, mm -hmm. um, you're talking about somebody wounded in France who could have a six- to eight-hour trip in a field ambulance bouncing over muddy dirt roads to get to a forward medical facility as versus somebody who could be given 30 minutes to an airfield, one hour in an airplane, and be at a hospital. Right. So the speed involved was critical. Right. The comfort of movement was critical. And basically, people did better than if they were evacuated by ground. Right. Even which, though there was no care in flight in most cases. Yeah. Which really holds true to today, because I mean, when you look at modern air medicine, at least you know U.S., what I'm used to with uh, especially helicopters, it's, it's the speed and it's the, uh, the care that you can give. It's those, both of those things. So. Yeah, and there again you're getting into the, the concept of use. You know, a, a helicopter 
responding to a car wreck that is only 15 minutes or 20 minutes from a level one trauma center has a very different requirement for in-flight care than does one that is responding out into the depths of Alaska where the flight is going to be an hour back. That's right. And so, I mean, you need to have the ability to do what is necessary for your patient and staff and equip the aircraft to suit your specific um, mission statement. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll talk a, a little bit about the development of dedicated air ambulances versus kind of the convertible aircraft where they'd be used for non-medical purposes. When when did that uh, come into being? Well, you know, it's, it's sort of interesting, actually, that we've, um, we've done a 360 on this one. All of the early air ambulance concepts were single-use, dedicated aircraft. The main reason for that is that they were all conceived of originally as military. And military aircraft could be protected by the Geneva Conventions if they are single-use. But if you move bullets and bombs on them on one leg of a trip and then put patients on the other, they are no longer eligible for protection. So to be um, subject to the Geneva Conventions and protected, they need to be dedicated. And therefore, since most of the original development of this was intended for military use, the concept was that they would be single-use dedicated airframes. But it very rapidly became recognized in the 1920s that that was impractical and that most countries, most services, could not afford to have the aircraft um, tied up when they weren't flying patients. They would just sit on the ground even though there were other needs for the airframes in the military operations. And therefore, the concept um, started to grow for dual use. And that became the standard throughout the interwar period. Very few dedicated airframes were were created and kept in that context. And in 1931, for example, again, Marie Marvin, who keeps coming back into this story, offered a prize for the civilian touring airplanes that were the most easily converted to ambulance use when needed and then convertible back. So that was really the trend that we were seeing up until the beginning of World War II. Then in World War II, again, some of the nations started out with dedicated airframes and very rapidly realized that that was a waste of um, personnel and equipment, and they started using the large cargo aircraft to carry troops and equipment and supplies into the battle zone and take casualties out. So even up until today, except in the military setting and in some private air ambulance systems run mostly by universities and large hospitals, um, dual use rather than single use seems to be the primary way of going. Hmm. I, I, I would have guessed that uh, I would have thought it started the other way, I, I bet your Geneva uh, Convention uh, that makes sense on, on why you'd had to do it that way. Yeah, it surprised I, me, too, because yeah. I also would have assumed it had gone the other way. Right. You know, the U.S. Army today still has some dedicated helicopter ambulances, but that's an exception rather than a rule. 
Mm-hmm. Most of our casualties that come back across the water or come out of like Iraq and Afghanistan to Germany and then back to the United States are traveling in dual-use fixed-wing aircraft, C-17s, the old C-41s, C-130s. And they carry in supplies and they bring out casualties. All right. And of course, in the civilian world today, I mean, you have some fixed-wing providers that are doing some dual-use, but primarily it's dedicated um, on the helicopter side. Yeah, there sure. I would yeah. have to, um, you know, bow to your expertise. I yeah. haven't looked that much at the current state. Yeah. Most of the ones that I'm familiar with around the world are not dedicated um, fixed-wing. They're dual-use fixed-wing, right. yeah. with it, the exception of a few companies like SOS International or right. Air Riga in Switzerland. Right. Um, the, the ownership system for the helicopters you know, I can't tell you. It's outside my area. Yeah. Well, let's um, let's talk about helicopters. When did they first appear on the evacuation scene? And you know, I, I know we, I knew I grew up uh, in watching Mash and you know the Korean War and of course the Vietnam War. Uh, they were used, but uh, were they on the scene earlier than that? Yeah, actually, helicopters were not used for much of anything in World War II because there weren't very many of them. Um, but they were first used as an AeroVac aircraft in 1944 in Burma. It's part of the U.S. Army system. They used a Sikorsky R-4, which was used primarily as a combination search and rescue and medevac aircraft, um, picking up um, casualties of plane crashes out in the bush. The first flight that they used it on, they picked up three casualties, including one of whom was wounded, or three crash victims, one of whom was wounded. So that was the first AeroVac in history with a helicopter, but they could not provide any care in flight. Um, Post-World um, War II, they were used by the French in Indochina, by the Brits in Malaysia, and then the things that you saw on MASH in Korea. Mm-hmm. Although even in Korea, we started out, I mean, what you're familiar with is the H-13, the little ones, but actually the first evacs were by CH-19s, the bigger aircraft, and were used just as a lift of opportunity. They weren't dedicated. They were used for clearing the battlefield. And then following that, we started developing more and more in-flight care um, and found out the shortcomings of the aircraft and then developed the Huey to resolve those shortcomings by the time the Vietnam War started. So kind of the same analogy to the early fixed wing, they were primarily used to just quickly get a soldier that was injured uh, to uh, care. Um, so there wasn't much in-flight services. When did that actual actually start, actual treatment as far as I know, probably during the Korean War, although it's not well documented, okay. plasma infusions with the needle started before flight, before the patient was put into the pod on that little H-13 helicopter, were definitely used. Medics flew on some of the larger helicopters, but I haven't found any good descriptions of the care given in flight. I don't think that any of it was more than first aid and maybe IVs. Got to remember, we're talking about relatively untrained medics. These guys were not paramedics. They were not trained to do more than stop bleeding, splint fractures, give morphine, and maybe open an airway manually. So I'm sure that it happened during the Korean War, but I can't document it. Okay. Well, here in the United States, we always quote that civilian air medicine started after the Vietnam War. 
but in your historical research, when and how did civilian air ambulance work become a reality, and was it actually in the U.S.? Well, as, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we had civil systems overseas, and the U.S. government looked at those, but basically, given the fact that we didn't have a national health service as they did in Sweden or Russia, um, there wasn't much governmental interest in starting civilian or ambulance systems mm -hmm. in the U.S. Most of what we had was doctors with their own private aircraft. Um, there were a few efforts to develop some flight nurse systems. I've, I've seen one article written by a flight nurse in 1930 who apparently was going out without a doctor to pick up patients and bring them back in her own airplane. But generally speaking, system is the wrong word. Usually the capabilities in the 20s and 30s were pickup crews provided by interested physicians or nurses in aircraft that were either owned by local airlines or flying clubs or by the providers themselves. Um, in the 20s and 30s, there was slow growth, strictly for transportation in isolated parts of the country, and interestingly, for disaster relief work. Um, we started a great big boom in interest when the Rock Springs, Texas tornado took place in 1927, and one of the two existing Army aircraft in the U.S. was used to rescue people and carry in supplies. And that started getting a lot of good publicity. Unfortunately, really not much came of it. Army didn't have any money to buy more aircraft. The civilian government wasn't real interested in doing it. And aircraft were still seen by many people as dangerous, and they were expensive. So 20s and 30s was episodic. Once in a while you saw it, it's been written about, but we didn't really have large-scale or um, widespread usage. What we did have, however, was a lot of patients moving on airliners, scheduled airliners. Um, by 1941, I think by August 1941, Mayo Clinic, which you mentioned earlier, um, reported that they were having 4,000 patients a year fly into Rochester for care hmm. on commercial airlines. And so that was actually the big way that patients were moving in the U.S. in that period. Okay. Yeah, because when we look at helicopter, we always sort of seem to quote, you know, Flight for Life in Denver, you know, after the Vietnam War sort of in the in the 70s as sort of the start of the yeah. civilian um, air medicine here in the United States. I, I mean, organized. Well, yeah. yeah, you can always look at um, specific instances. Um, there was one case in which a experimental helicopter from the Bell plant picked up the victim of a boat wreck and rescued him out of the water. But as far as regular use or planned use of helicopters in in medicine, it did not happen uh, more than occasionally until after Vietnam. Yeah. And it's interesting, your comment on uh, countries with a national health service or a national health plan, that that became part of their planning, uh, where, you know, we did not have that in the U.S. and still don't. Yeah, it was a big um, issue for the Soviets, especially. Lenin was very much in favor. And I, I found an old book once, um, written in 1934-35, um, from Russia, 
and it was interviews with people. And one of the peasants out in Siberia said, well, we don't have a lot, but we do have an air ambulance. <laughs> so he was making his political points. Yeah. Well, and, you know, in rural areas of the U.S., uh, there's communities that are very proud to have uh, an air ambulance. That means a lot to them because they aren't close to, uh, to you know, tertiary care or services that would be available at their small local hospital if they have one. You know, so. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually from Alaska in the States, and so uh-huh. I'm very well aware of isolation and yes. the need for air transportation. You know, the whole state of Alaska has only got 2,500 miles of roads, and it's three times as big as Texas. Yeah. So we rely very heavily. But for the most part, we use unconverted bush planes without care in flight. These are, for the most part, what's available, the local right. FBOs. Um, there are air ambulances in Alaska, of course, but they tend to fly from Anchorage to Seattle or from Fairbanks to Anchorage. And not quite as often as you would expect that they get out into the boonies. Yeah. Actually, there it, it is developing more there. There's uh, more helicopter use and then smaller fixed-wing aircraft that can get into some of the shorter runways, you know, turbo right. uh, props that are that are being used. Yeah, there, there was a Pilatus a few years ago that was doing that uh, uh-huh. very effectively. Uh-huh. And there's still beavers and otters around that are used for that. Um, and as you say, there are getting to be more civilian helicopters. Right. The biggest problem in Alaska with helicopters is that the ranges are beyond what most helicopters can fly comfortably. Yeah. You really need fixed wing to get up to Nome or to Barrel. Right. Right. Well, let's go back in history a little bit uh, and talk about dirigibles. Um, were Were they ever really used for air evacuation, or did any of their promise at the time kind of have a negative effect with the Hindenburg disaster? And, um... Not really. Um, I am unaware of any evidence that dirigibles were ever really considered. Okay. I've read articles proposing air evacuation by dirigible, and in the 20s and 30s, there were several proposals to actually use dirigibles as tuberculosis hospitals and just keep the patients elevated in high altitude for a period of a week or two, supposedly to cure their tuberculosis. But I'm not aware that anybody ever really considered it. And again, the question is, what's the benefit? They fly slowly. They can't really uh, move very many people if you're talking about a modern battlefield. And if you're talking about military use, they're great targets. Right. So... Although Des Moines, the Dutch Surgeon General I talked about, did include dirigibles in his original concept from 1910, I don't think they were ever used. There was, interestingly enough, a proposal made to DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, a couple of years ago for a dirigible hospital. But I am unaware that they funded it, and I don't think it's a continuing project, mostly because those of us who looked at it said, what good is it? I don't think the Hindenburg had any effect on this, simply because nobody was really looking at dirigibles for that purpose anyway. Well, I I had to ask that question uh, from a historical perspective. It'd be neat. I'd love to see a dirigible (laughs) with a red cross painted on the side. (laughs) But uh, I don't think it ever happened. Yeah. So the... um... You had talked earlier, you know, we went from 
kind of the immediate evacuation to kind of that longer uh, transport where you're providing uh, care in the air or, you know, really in the U.S., a lot of the air medical services uh, refer to themselves as flying ICUs with their capability. Um, how, when did this really develop and, and why? And is, is I, I know from like Iraq and Afghanistan, a lot of soldiers, they, you know, have an evacuation system where they're transported in the country and then, you know, fixed wing jet uh, to Germany, I think, primarily. Um, right. And, of course, you've got, uh, you know, a soldier for a few hours in the air, so you need to be doing more than just evacuation. So can you could you comment on that? Well, in fact, what you just mentioned is exactly the reason that we started developing more capability. World War II required long-distance transportation. We had people coming back from the Pacific. We had people coming back across the water, even though the majority of our transport, like out of Europe, was still by ship. But by the time we got to the Korean War, it was almost entirely by air. And those long flights with the possibility for people to go bad in flight made it mandatory that we have more care. And so they started working on it. And the first post-World War II um, air ambulance was designed, it was the C-131, um, pressurized, nice advantage, specifically designed to carry iron lungs because at that time respiratory polio was a major concern, and other uh, basically minor types of inflate treatment, suctions, chest tubes, things like that, because the rule in World War II had been move them if they're stable. In this period, it became stabilize them first, and then you can move them. Now, what you're talking about when we get to the Iraq-Afghanistan situation is we can move them, we'll stabilize them in flight. And that's really the development phases that we've gone through. Hmm. Um, throughout the 1960s, you saw increasing use of equipment in flight. Um, they routinely carried striker frames, respirators, Emerson plural drainage pumps became common, uh, closed water sealed drainage became the norm, IPPB began to be flown regularly um, along with what was then the brand new baby bird respirator. This was the, the first steps toward being able to really do things in flight. And by 1973, when I first started flying medevacs, Belgium had an aerospatial Puma helicopter with sorry, I can't even talk today, sophisticated equipment for intubation, suction, drainage, probing, cardiac infarction monitoring, and so forth. Then in the 80s, especially in the civilian setting, interestingly, it became nearly routine to fly with intra-aortic balloon pumps, Doppler blood pressure monitoring equipment, etc. We've flown portable hyperbaric chambers routinely since the late 1980s. And I guess all I can say is that this rapid infusion of medical technology into the air environment doesn't seem to be slowing down. Now what we're seeing is there's only a couple of year lag time between the introduction of a piece of equipment into the hospitals before it appears in aircraft. Right. And that time lag appears to be decreasing. Today, almost any piece of equipment short of an MRI has been put into an airplane, and we finally reached the capability of a true flying ECU. We used to say, as I said, only move stable patients. Now the rule seems to be moving unstable patients is okay if you have well-trained people and the needed equipment to provide care for them. 
and we're removing, in the military at least, a large number of very unstable patients with extremely good success rates. Right. We actually now have something called a um, CCAT, a Critical Care Aeromedical Transport Team, provided mostly by the Air Force, which is a physician, nurse, respiratory therapist team that is deployed specifically when we need to move critically ill patients. And they are providing a flying ICU. Yeah, it, it, you mentioned uh, the technology changes, you know, the big thing now with, uh, of course, research coming out of Germany, too, on, on stroke care and using ultrasound. Um, um, you know, that's adding adding to the capabilities and the things that you can do um, in the air, you know, while you're transporting mm-hmm. a patient. So, yeah, um, The only critical issue are, number one, does the equipment work? in the airborne environment the way it's supposed to. Right. Number two, does it interfere with the aircraft systems and flight controls? And if those two are answered positively, you can use the equipment, and we're in good shape. Right. And then, of course, weight considerations, depending on how big the equipment is. Yeah. Sure. I mean, yeah. MRI scanners are still a no-no. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I know you're currently working uh, with your work with NATO on uh, the use of uh, UAV or unmanned aerial vehicles for cas- casualty evacuation. Uh, I guess the obvious question is on safety, both from the aviation and clinical perspective. Uh, so could you comment? Is this something that's realistic or do you think it's going to happen? Uh, yes and yes. <laughs> um, I think that the answer is is realistic and it's going to happen but it's going to be difficult. The reason I say that is right now, there are zero regulations in place, either at the Federal Aviation Administration level in the US or at the JARS level in Europe for man rating a UAV, i.e. certifying that it's safe to fly with a human on board. Um, Before we can do this officially, we've got to figure out some kind of a rating and evaluation system for these. You don't want a casualty to be put in the side or in the back of a UAV that can do a 10G climbing turn, takeoff. Um, So we have to decide what are the safe flight parameters and the safety parameters. And what we're doing on this NATO committee is trying to develop things like G tolerance limits, vibration uh, requirements, lighting, um, air quality, heating, cooling, the same stuff that we've had to do in the past for helicopters, but now in this this broader sense that very honestly scares the heck out of people. I mean, most people, when I mention this concept, it's, oh, no, never get me one of those. Well, that's what they used to say about airplanes and especially about helicopters. So is it doable? Yes. We're trying to make the standards under which it can be done safely. Is it going to happen? Yes. So by 2015, 30% of all of the vehicles in the American military will be robotic, ground and air. I guarantee you that soldiers are going to do what American soldiers do best. They're going to improvise. And if they've got a situation in which they need to move a patient, and for one reason or another there is not a regular air ambulance available, or if there's not a medical crew available, or if they just want something that comes in with a a lower signature that's less likely to tell the enemy that they're there, they're going to take a logistics UAV and throw a patient in the back, and they're going to move him out. Whether or not we like it, it's going to happen. Hmm. So I foresee in the very near future, 
this is going to be a reality. We're just trying to help make it um, done so that we're sure it won't hurt the patient. Yeah, and and the the concept would be that you load the patient on. There's no caregiver. There's no pilot. It's just purely evacuation to quickly move. That's them. right. Yeah. At the moment, we're, right. this is what the military and NATO calls casavac, casualty evacuation, mm-hmm. as versus medevac, which is medical evacuation. Medevac has a requirement for in-flight care and attendance. To get to a situation in which a UAV can be used in that setting, i.e. to replace a regular air ambulance, we're going to have to develop some much better in-flight care equipment. We've got to have closed-loop systems whereby either a physician at the receiving site, not in the aircraft, but over a radio link, can control things like the respiratory volume, the um, pacing level, whatever you want to use, the fluid flow, or the devices are going to have to be able to adjust it themselves based on the patient's physiological parameters. We have a lot of studies going on in the U.S. military and in the civilian community right now trying to develop systems that will do that. But that's still down the road a little bit. I, I think we're far from the state when UAVs can replace true air ambulances with medical attendance and care in the air. But for Kazafak, first use is just around the corner. Interesting. Yeah, it seems like you have to build into um, some redundancy into the uh, systems, too, um, just like you do yes. from the aviation side in piloting it. And Well, we, we will anyway, because... Yeah. Those things are going to be a big investment. Right. They are all having dual control systems. They are all developing um, dual hydraulic systems. They're, they're having a lot of the redundancy that we normally would expect in a manned aircraft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, when you were talking about that, my, I have a nephew that uh, just graduated from the Air Force Academy and, of course, is in flight school. And like many uh, cadets coming out, they want to be, you know, the uh, fighter pilots, and of course, you of course. know, there's in not, you know, in the past it was well, if you made that, that was great, but then you could be a transport pilot. Well, now there's this whole other thing where you're an unmanned, you're actually piloting the aircraft, but you're not in the aircraft, right? Which, and that poses some very interesting sociological and emotional yeah. problems. Yeah, that some yeah. of the guys are having troubles dealing with. Right. Yeah, and you wonder I mean, if you that's know, they wanted the... to be a pilot. They, you know, <laughs> they're flying model airplanes. <laughs> yeah, well, right. And and is, uh, what made me think is like, well, is that the person you want, or is it the person that you know didn't go to the Air Force Academy but is a great uh, game? person knows how to do all the game controls you know Uh, i'm I'm thinking my own children (laughs) well you know that's a very interesting discussion because different groups in the world are dealing with that very differently the air force or the u.s air force is still primarily trying to man theirs with trained pilots yes the israeli air force mans all of their drone pilot positions with people who flunked out of flight school (laughs) The U.S. Army gives them to infantry sergeants and teaches them how to fly the thing and lets them go. Um, there, there's a, a large uh, amount of research that still needs to be done to determine how do you develop the best pilots for these. Yeah, Lots of different attitudes. And yeah, I don't it, think well, anybody's got the right answer yet. Yeah, it's interesting just watching, you know, 
my youngest son especially is uh, into gaming and just watching him at the controls it's just amazing and there's no way i could move things you know that mm -hmm. quickly and there's like you know instead of a computer there's 15 different buttons that you can and i'm just not a gamer i just have never really enjoyed uh doing that but you know it's somebody that has those kinds of quick reactions and knows how to control multiple things so it's interesting well, and that's the attitude the Army's pretty much taken. Yeah. You know, we look at our young troops and we say, you know, you're fast, you're a good gamer, um, would you like to go to pilot school? <laughs> and we send them to UAV pilot school. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, there have been several crashes in the civilian air ambulance world. I'm sure you're uh, aware of that. Um, and yeah. and very, very few in the rest of the world. Not that there's not. I mean, there was crash uh, i followed these all with air medical today and putting out news and information of course in australia there have, have been incidents or crashes in other places in the world but it seems almost epidemic here in the u.s and it's being here and part of it it's very hard to understand what some of those causes are i, I guess from your study yeah. and and from a historical perspective and you touched on that a little bit because of the early Part of aviation was dangerous. Um, uh, do you have any comments on why this might be, or any advice on how we can lower or eliminate these crashes in the U.S.? Yeah. Um, first of all, I'm totally unqualified to comment on this because I haven't researched it intensively. Mm -hmm. However, I got opinions like everybody else. Um, I, I very honestly look at this and I see a couple of very specific discriminators. Most of these crashes happen in for-profit systems or large university systems rather than in multiple use like state police, helicopter systems, or military systems. And in most of the overseas areas, the helicopter ambulances are essentially militarized, if you will. Um, they're either run by the Coast Guard or by a paramilitary type group, or in a few cases like the German Auto Club, which is a different organizational structure that's really more military than what we would consider civilian. I think that we have to take a good look at asking the question, and I'm not saying that this is the answer, I'm just saying we should ask the question, are there in fact um, reasons that pilots in certain types of air ambulance systems tend to take risks? Is there some kind of a benefit for the pilot in not turning down a risky mission? Is there any pressure to fly anyway, even though the basic inclination is to say, you know, this is not a good idea? Um, I, you know, I don't know if that's the case, but if you look at the history of the civilian air, uh, the fixed-wing air ambulance systems, Accidents are caused by pilot error, and one of the biggest problems in pilot error is you fly when you really shouldn't, or you take risks. I've always been very concerned about the policy that is in effect with many air ambulance services in the U.S. that you don't tell the pilot what he's carrying. The pilots don't tend to hang around the emergency room and see blood on the floor. And therefore, there's a great tendency, in my opinion, for them to say, hmm, I don't know what's back there, but it could be really bad, and if I cut a corner here and go a little bit faster, I might be able to save a life. 
Hmm. Instead of realizing, yeah, the guy's bleeding, but we got it under control. Don't worry about it. Just get us there in one piece. It's, I think it's very equivalent to what in the 1960s and 70s, ground ambulances called the red light and siren syndrome. At that point, we had essentially non-medically trained drivers for ground ambulances. And their biggest thing in the world was get there as fast as we can, cut all the corners, run through the red lights, and just get them because you might save somebody's life. And they were crashing at extremely high rates. And I'm wondering if we don't have a similar kind of system going on in some of our ambulance services. Um, personally, I like the services best where the pilots spend their downtime hanging around the emergency room getting used to the blood on the floor, getting used to realizing that just because somebody's bleeding bad doesn't mean they're going to die in the next 30 seconds. If they don't understand that, they're more liable to do things that probably shouldn't be done. You know, I'm reminded of one pilot I was talking to who was flying along, fat, dumb, and happy. He had nothing, no idea what they had in the back except that it was a car wreck victim. And he looked down between his feet, and there's a rivulet of blood dripping into the chin bubble. And he passed out. Yeah. He'd never seen blood before. Yeah. Um, an example? Yeah. An out-of-the-norm example? Yeah. But it happened. Well, it's it's an interesting <laughs> observation, because in the mid-'80s, there was a, a big movement to separate that, because we did not want the pilots to make decisions from an aviation perspective uh, based on, you know, the crew running in saying, if we don't go, this, you know, this child's going to die, you know, and so that, Mm -hmm. and then you, you had a lot of pilots, at least in the eighties there, that were coming out of the Vietnam experience and, you know, every mission was dangerous. So of course you would, would take it. And so that we'd separate. And so the pilot was purely making a decision. I can get from point A to point B and back or, you know, from a three-legged flight, and I can do it safely based on the weather conditions out there. Um, and I think that was the, the reason. And so it's an interesting observation. And I know you've not uh, done uh, the research. No, it, it's, it is it's a, a question that yeah. it's a question that has come up again and again. I was the chairman of the Air Ambulance Subcommittee for the Aerospace Medical Association mm-hmm. umpty ump years ago, back in the early 80s. And this was one of the same questions that we discussed at that time. Mm-hmm. I don't know that there's a good answer. But as I said, I've I've got some concern with the ones who don't understand that just because there's blood on the floor doesn't mean somebody's going to die on you. Yeah, and I think that's a it's a very interesting uh, comment and observation. Uh, I it it's tough, you know. We even uh, in the U.S., you know, there was a crash with Maryland State Police. Uh, so it's mm-hmm. it, it's right. not yeah it's it's uh, it seems to be affecting all different segments of the. Uh, industry or community, not just the, the you know... It's yeah, but, the... What we, but what we need to do, though, to analyze it is to do a real stratified breakdown. Yes, there has been a Maryland State Police crash, but the question is, what is the crash rate of public service dual-use missions as versus um, single-use university-based or hospital-based missions? Yeah. And I don't know what the answer is, but to get a good analysis, that's the kind of breakdown we have to look at. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, I didn't, I know, I, I just wanted to 
from your perspective, you know, historically, if you had some comments on that, that's very interesting. Um, I got a comment on everything. It doesn't make it <laughs> worth any more than what you pay for. It. <laughs> um, well, I know from uh, looking at all your publications, and I'll have those in the show notes. Uh, but I guess could you comment for our listeners if you know we have listeners that are you know just getting into air medical or people that are. Uh, historians that want to really understand it. What do you recommend? I know you've written extensively, and I, I think please also comment about your, you know, from Balloon to Blackhawk, your your four part series. But are there specific works that you would recommend um, to our listeners to to really understand the uh, history of air medicine? Yeah. If hmm. unfortunately, the Balloon to Blackhawk one and some of my other publications are hard to come by because they're government or NATO publications, and they're not indexed well. I see. I would suggest the best initial overview is the one that I have listed in Problems in Critical Care back in 1990, December of 1990, called Wings of Life and Hope, A History of Aeromedical Evacuation. Um, in all due modesty, I think it's probably the best short overview history of AeroVac that has ever been written. How's that for modesty? Yeah. Well, no, that, I mean, that's, that's what we need. But that would be the one I'd look at. Okay. Are there others, too, that you would recommend? Um, boy, if you, if you could find it, my, um, my 1981 that I did for Fort Rucker, um, a physician's guide to air evacuation, was the original Army manual on the subject, um, and it was quite useful. I was actually a master's thesis once upon a time. But the other one that I think you might find useful is one called Medical Evacuation, History and Development, the Future in the Multinational Environment, which is a NATO research and technology organization publication from 2000, September 2000. And that would probably be available through the NATO people, um, which, again, is, is a, a good overview. But there I look more at the development of evacuation with air evacuation being only a portion of it I rather see. than the the main thrust. Okay. I'd say probably the problems in critical care one is about the best. Okay. Well, good. I'll uh, list those so that people can do some further research. I know it's pretty difficult in a, in a podcast to cover the history of air medicine, especially when you've been researching it for over 30 years. Um you're currently working on the biography of uh, Mademoiselle Marie Marmont uh, of France. Um, I guess, what was her role in the development of the uh, airplane ambulance, and why do you think she is worthy of this further study? Thank you for the question. I knew that was coming, and I love it. Um, <laughs> most of my friends refer to Marie as my second wife, because um, I spend more time with her than I do with my real wife. Um, <laughs> My my real wife says it's okay. She's not a threat. She's been dead for 50 years, so it's okay. But she's a fascinating person. She's one of those historical rarities. You know, somebody that had an effective, engaging personality that you read a little bit about and you say, darn, I wish I'd known that person. But unfortunately, an awful lot is not known about her life. She was a world-class athlete, more than 20 gold medals in multiple sports, first woman to climb most of the peaks in the French and Swiss Alps, surgical nurse, first woman to pilot a balloon across the English Channel, third woman in the world to get a fixed-wing pilot's license, first woman in the world to pilot an airplane in combat, served as an infantryman in World War I, pretending she was a man, 
and invented the metal snow ski that we all know and love. Jeez. She was author, poet, got international prizes for her work. But as far as we're concerned for this discussion, her main claim to fame is that she has been called the godmother of medical aviation. She was certainly the most influential woman in the world in this arena, and arguably the most important person of either gender in the early fight for air evacuation. She proposed to the French government as early as 1910, remember two years after the first airplane flights in Europe, the formation of an entire fleet of airplane ambulances piloted by a squadron of women pilots, and along with the engineer who developed the famous SPAD fighter, Bechereau, she designed a very practical and functional airplane ambulance in 1911. She had a public speaking tour of France and collected donations from the public to purchase one of these for the French government and turned her order into debt reducing in 1912, only to lose all her money when the owner of the firm embezzled it. Um, she then persevered in supporting this then heretical concept, despite official and unofficial disapproval, public disinterest, and open opposition from government, military, aviation, and medical experts who said it was impractical and dangerous. She decided to say to heck with them, and she started a, spring, a, a string of public speaking engagements on the subject of airplanes and air ambulances, and she spent the rest of her life proselytizing for increased public acceptance of AeroVac. By the time she died at the age of 88, she'd given more than 6,000 presentations on six continents. Early on, she saw the need for trained in-flight care and she developed a training courses for, a course for nurses on flight physiology in the 1920s. When France implemented formal training for flight nurses, she was the proud recipient of diploma number one. So she's the first flight nurse in the world. She played a major role in organizing the 1929 International Congress on Medical Aviation, the first international meeting on the subject, and several follow-on meetings that happened every two years. She served as vice president of Les Amis de l'Aviation Sanitaire, the Friends of Medical Aviation, throughout its lifetime, was an international organization of air ambulance people, and she contributed frequently to its journal. Two of her accomplishments, interestingly enough, were the inauguration of civil air ambulance organizations and structures in Morocco and Algeria. She wrote, directed, and acted in films of propaganda in favor of air evacuation. In one of them, she became the first in-flight caregiver who was filmed providing care in flight. She learned to fly a helicopter at the age of 80, the same year she broke the sound barrier in an American <laughs> fighter jet. She died as the most decorated woman in the history of France, with about 30 medals and decorations. Nobody's got a full list yet, as far as I know. And she died in total obscurity as a crazy, impoverished old lady, a true travesty of history, because wow. she was forgotten. Hmm. She outlived her family and friends. She outlived all of her compatriots and her contemporaries and was basically forgotten for about 30 years. But recently, through the efforts of myself and several other people, her fame is spreading and people are starting to recognize her again. France just issued a stamp in her honor a couple of years ago. She was just admitted to the Women in Aviation International Pioneer Hall of Fame. And there's now an annual award in her honor given by the Aerospace Medical Association and the French Aviation and Space Medicine Association. Unlike most prophets, she lived to see what she'd been talking about her entire life come true. And I think that why is she important? Because every time we see an air ambulance fly over, we need to think of her. Because she made it happen. Wow. And that's why. 
Yeah, well, you convinced me. When uh, do you expect the book uh, to be completed? I don't know. There's still there are a couple of big holes in her life that I'm still trying to research. One of which is I am convinced in my own mind, but I can't prove yet, that from 1917 to about 1935, she also worked part-time for the French um, uh, security services as a spy of some kind. And those files have not yet been opened. So I'm waiting to get access to those files. The other problem, she spent a lot of her time from 1925 the things that she wrote during that period and that she published are all in local French colonial newspapers, which I can't find. Oh. So I'm still having troubles. I've got some people now looking, for instance, at the Casablanca National Library, trying to see if they've got them in Morocco. But I'm having trouble with some of those um, research tools. The main story is written. And if you want a fast overview, take a look again on my publication list. There's one called Marie Marvin and the Development of Aeromedical Evacuation, which appeared in Aviation Space and Environmental Medicine in August of 2003. And that's a good introduction to her and her life. Yeah, I, I've, I, I did look at that, so I will make sure that's okay. in the show notes, too. And you also... And it's on tra- the web, by the way. Yeah, and you translated one of her articles, to The Intoxication of Flight... Oh yeah, I've I've translated a bunch of her stuff. Wow, interesting. Yeah, I was... yeah, she was published in a lot of journals, a lot of magazines. She made her living for many years as a correspondent, and so there's a lot of stuff out there that she wrote. So then, why did she die in obscurity and in poverty? What just that well, she like out... I said, she she outlived all of her family. She yeah. outlived all of her friends. She outlived all of her contemporaries, and she was overshadowed, for instance, in the aviation realm by Maurice Basti from the 1930s, by Amelia Earhart, who did the big international trips, and it made the fact that she set the first woman's flight record of 52 minutes and went 43 kilometers or something. Um, She was just overshadowed by them and then rapidly dropped off of everybody's view screen. I, and, one of the other interesting facts, it, I think, that in the publication was that in 1908, she participated in the Tour de France uh, as the <laughs> only, only woman, and she finished, I mean, only 30 of 100 men. And, of course, back then, they didn't have nearly the support vehicles and everything that you see today. Uh, but I thought, wow, that's that's amazing. No, in fact, <laughs> at that period, it was a requirement that you had to do all the repairs in your bike yourself. Yourself, yeah. <laughs> you could not hire a local. You couldn't have somebody else do it. You had to fix it yourself. But she didn't really ride in the Tour de France. Yeah, well, she, correct, she rode the route. Yeah, Correct. they wouldn't yeah. let her ride right. because she was a woman and it was exactly. a man's sport. Right. So the, two weeks after, she went and rode, rode the entire route oh, I and see. completed it. Yeah. I didn't realize it was <laughs> two weeks. She just wanted to show that there was nothing that she couldn't do simply because she was female. Yeah. I, I'm always – I'm a big cyclist and watch every minute of the Tour de France that's, uh, that's um, you know, televised. But uh, I've always wondered why they – there's not an equivalent women's or why women aren't in that. But uh, Well, you know, it's interesting. There were actually a lot of women's long-distance um, bike races at the turn of the 20th century. About 1880 to 1910 or so, there were quite a few. 
Um, Helen DeTrue, who was another early pilot lady, um, was the female bicycle distance racer of Belgium. And Marie took part in several long-distance competitions. So it was quite common at the time, but the fact is nobody paid to watch it. Yeah. And so they stopped doing it. Yeah. They, they simply could not get an audience. Well, the uh, Association of Air Medical Services is celebrating their 30th anniversary uh, this year, uh, and for some of us, that seems like a long time that you know that we've all been involved in this industry community. Um, but in reality, it's a very short time, especially from a historical perspective. What do you think will be the uh, future? What will the future bring for air medicine in evacuation in in both military and the civilian worlds? Well, I flunked fortune telling in medical school. <laughs> um, you know, I I think that there are some things that are very obvious. We're going to have increased in-flight care capabilities. We are going to have an increased level of autonomy and self-adjustment capability in some of the equipment. I think we're going to have fluid pumps that change their rate of flow based on physiological requirements, etc. I, as we mentioned earlier, I think we're going to have unpiloted aero vehicles moving patients in the not-too-distant future. Mm -hmm. But on a more practical level, in the short term, I think one thing we have to keep in mind is that every study that's been done that I'm aware of has shown that there are many patients who are being air evacuated who don't really need it. And I'm wondering if, in fact, economics and government control are somehow going to attempt to get that under control. Mm -hmm. I sort of predict that insurance and government programs are going to start reducing their reimbursements, probably going to start by requiring certification of valid need for air ambulance versus ground ambulance to get paid. And I think that that's going to put a big strain on some of the programs. Mm -hmm. I would not be at all surprised to find many civilian programs um, joining together to gain um, economies of scale and probably in the long run, less competition from that standpoint. Um, it's, uh, what about um, you know, telemedicine or increased capabilities of, of services in outlying hospitals rather than even having to transport? Oh, absolutely. Um, this is going to happen. Yeah. Um, there are many programs currently ongoing that are doing exactly that. Um, British Columbia has a trauma surgery teleprogram that has been going on now for eight or ten years. Mm -hmm. And they have been able to use telemedicine to preclude unnecessary transports, to allow um, a doc out in one of their boonie villages to do what is necessary rather than move the patient immediately. The University of Arizona has a very extensive trauma care emerge, or telemedicine system that, again, has precluded unnecessary transports. Within the military setting, we keep lots of metrics. And I can tell you, you know, that the use of air ambulances out of Afghanistan has saved us X number of troops. It has returned them to duty this much faster. It has made it more possible to get them back to duty and so forth. But one of the statistics we always look at is how many of these really affected the care of the patient. 
and we can tell you whether or not an evac was useful. And I think more civilian communities need to be taking a look at that issue. Yeah, effective utilization review of the flight. Yeah, well, it's an effective, yeah, but, but a little bit different. You know, most of the post-flight reviews I've seen have been from the standpoint of, well, we got there, we did this, everything went fine, the handover went well, we did the following in flight, and we delivered the patient alive. But the big question is, did, in fact, the, benefit, the patient benefit from it? Right. And that's the question that we don't tend to ask as often as I think we should. Mm-hmm. But I'm and, a cynic. Yeah, well, and yeah, I mean, you, you want to have a good outcome. And then, of course, in the U.S., <clears throat> you had, you know, areas that weren't covered. Uh, it was hard to even, you know, ground might have been the preferred way, but you, there wasn't a ground ambulance that could transport them. Or you were taking in the only case, only community resource out of there, and, you know, that's changing. Certainly. and in that case, to me, that's justification for error. Right, right. You know, if there's no better way to do it, error is fine. Right. But on the other hand, a patient with a broken leg who goes 40 miles by air rather than 40 miles by ground when one was available it's hard to justify. Right. You need to figure out what the deal is. Right. I mean, I remember one day that I flew in Alaska. We went almost 200 miles in a Huey in the middle of a blizzard to pick up a guy with, um, quote, third-degree burns over 80% of his body. And when we got there, he walked out to the aircraft. He had maybe 10% second degree. He did not need to be moved by air, certainly not at the risk of a crew. And... Unfortunately, there's a lot who are still being moved at the risk of crews who don't need to be. Right. Well, it's a it's a good good observation. Um, but don't, well, don't let me end on a bad note, though. No, no. It, For it, those it, who need it, air ambulances are great. I yes. have a be- I'm a great supporter of them. Right. I've flown them my entire career. I love them, but we just have to be rational about how we use them. Right. Well, uh, I know time's running short, and I appreciate you taking time from your busy schedule. We're, uh, for our listeners, we're doing this, um, talking to Dr. Lamb uh, from his uh, from Brussels, from your office there. Um, so it's uh, I truly appreciate you taking the time to be on. It's really been an honor and a privilege to have you on the show, and especially as I said earlier, in light of us celebrating the 30th anniversary of. Aims uh, to have this historical look at uh, air medicine. Well, thank you very much for the invitation to participate. Um, obviously, it's a subject that I enjoy and I'm happy to talk about. If any of your listeners um, want to get in touch and either ask other questions or have any knowledge that I need to pick up for my collection, I'd be more than happy to hear from them. And I'll put uh, some contact information uh, for them so we'll talk to you. Uh, to have that in the show notes. So thank you again, Dr. Lamb. No problem. Thank you very much, Ed. I've enjoyed it. I wanted to mention Road ID again, like I did in episode 22. While they are not an official sponsor of Air Medical Today, they are of the Kansas Cyclist Podcast, which is another podcast I do with Randy Reza on cycling in Kansas and surrounding states. Road ID is asking that all EMS personnel be aware of cyclists, skiers, runners, and other athletes wearing their identification systems to obtain personal and medical information. 
I am so convinced of the value of road ID that I wear my bracelet all the time, even when I am not exercising. For information on their many products, go to www.roadid.com. If your company is interested in becoming a sponsor of Bear Medical today, please contact me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com or on iTunes. Information about the Facebook group and Twitter account can also be found at the website. Remember, if you would like to leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song of the podcast. Stan's work can be found at RoomTuneEnterprise.com. Take care and fly safe.